And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when uh, there appears to be a uh, likelihood that the Israeli war cabinet will approve the deal for the release of the first 50 hostages. We will keep you covered on all of that. But with those negotiations going on, it's worth talking about two people who didn't have to negotiate because they were drawn to each other instinctively, and yet they represented two very, very different slices of America. A president and uh, an educator, and an educator who was born a slave and lived one of the more remarkable lives in American history. I'm talking about Teddy and Booker T., that's uh, Theodore Roosevelt. He always preferred Theodore, did not like being called Teddy. Uh, and Booker T. Booker T. gave himself his own name, having been born as a slave and then going on to found uh, Tuskegee Institute, and uh, which was one of the very first black higher education institutions in the country. Uh, their friendship, which changed America, and as the subtitle says, blazed a path for racial equality is the subject of the latest bestseller by Brian Kilmeade of Fox News. His previous books have been wonderful. We've enjoyed talking to him about them. They include uh, George Washington, The Secret Six, Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of St. Louis of New Orleans, pardon me, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, and most recently, The President and the Freedom Fighter, about the friendship between Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Brian, congratulations on the book. Uh, the, the first most obvious question is, how was this relationship between Theodore Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington similar and at the same time very different from the relationship between Abe Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. You know, it's interesting because uh, no one thought both of them were come from mature backgrounds, obviously harder with Frederick Douglass as a slave than a fugitive, uh, than a uh, firebrand journalist, newspaper writer, uh, speaker orator. And then Lincoln is uh, dirt poor, becomes a lawyer, not didn't really distinguish himself except for his honesty, uh, runs for office, doesn't go well, go, has a Senate debate, doesn't win, but impresses, then becomes president. So it just ended up to two unlikely people at the exact right time, and they would emerge as our most significant, couple of the most significant people ever. So without a war as a backdrop for the first time, I thought, who really stands out? And I think that these guys also, unlikely to pair up, unlikely to have mutual respect, unlikely to even know each other. And in case you have, people think, well, Tate hey, Roosevelt's got uh, – uh, T.R. had plenty of money. He was going to be successful. Not really, as you know, Michael, better than uh, almost anyone. He was extremely unhealthy as a kid. Their parents thought he was going to die. He had asthma. They could only sit and watch him. Uh, they couldn't do anything. He had intestinal issues. A collar of the intestines is uh, the best I can ascertain of what it was. He couldn't leave the house. Weighed about 80 pounds. And if I would say, oh, yeah, that guy will end up on Mount Rushmore. And this guy will transform generations of uh, black uh, black Americans, African-Americans. And you would have said, I'm crazy. But they end up coming together at the exact right time in which they need need them. And the one thing they had in common, they love self-made men. Uh, they And they really saw that in each other. And the, the dinner that they had, which is one of the most famous White House dinners <laughs> in history, and 
it it occurred literally just days after Theodore Roosevelt became president after President McKinley died. Did he have something like this in in mind to break no. the racial barrier or how did no. he come up with the idea of inviting Booker T. Washington for dinner at the White House? Great question to phrase it that way, because it isn't a Rosa Parks moment where I'm going to sit in front of the bus, I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to change the world. It was, hey, uh, guess what? I heard you in Washington. I've done free for dinner. My family's here. Why don't you come over? Just became president. We're going to work together. Perfect time. He hesitated for a second and thought, well, is this really a good idea? Now, for Teddy Roosevelt, He's like, hey, I did it as governor. Black men slept at my house when these guys had business. We had to be up early. People would stay over. What's the big deal? Well, it was unprecedented, and it would have been fine, except for one reporter got word of it, printed it. It became a raging controversy in the South because the big fear among some racist segregationists was, wow, next thing you know, they're going to want everything equal. we got to make sure that that doesn't happen. So they kept their relationship going, their friendship, their partnership, but they just kept it low key and they wouldn't necessarily uh, agitate. What they would do is this is the best I could do to move society along in a place we needed it. We needed at the time to go. But they didn't think they had that moment uh, until later. And then later, you know, they both thought they got hurt by it. And Mark Twain came up to him at a speech in Harvard where they were both there, but they kind of avoided each other, Booker and, and the president. And he said, hey, do you think I made a mistake inviting him over? He goes, probably the way you did it. And Mark Twain was never a fan anyway. But it's just at the time, that was a big deal. Today, we look back and say, really? How could that possibly have been a controversy? Well, you have some of the quotes from Southern newspapers and Southern oh. commentators who thought this was the end of the world, that it showed that Theodore Roosevelt should never have been allowed to take the presidency. Uh, explain some of that. Well, if you uh, back then, it's hard to get in that mindset. But from reading everything I read, if there there was a fear among white people uh, after they instituted Jim Crow, segregation, uh, poll taxes, lynchings, if you were caught in an interracial relationship, that if you if you had a black man, even if it's Booker T. Washington, as famous as he was at the time, eating with a white family that has to be the most powerful in the country, then they're going to want equal rights on everything. It's going to be impossible to keep them down. Now, that's not everywhere, and it's not everywhere in the South. It was pockets of the South. And a lot of these journalists were just outraged, and the headlines are vile. So these guys don't get insulted. They say, listen, uh, Teddy Roosevelt didn't back down, but he didn't talk about it much. And he just played it down the rest of his career. Booker T. did write about it and did say overall – that they had to reconfigure the relationship. If he was going to come to the White House, which was often, it would be about 11 or 4 or late at night. They wouldn't have dinner and be provocative. And the main reason, Michael, is it doesn't work for their both of their objectives. Their objective was to bring the South forward and to eradicate ra- racism. But they knew they had to do it incrementally. And it does no good to do big symbolic moments. He wanted to do it through education. He wanted thousands of African-Americans to get educated, learn a trade, and go into the workforce and prove that those things your parents told you about, whites and blacks, was wrong. And if you cause an uproar because of an incident, uh, you shut down a bridge, like we see all the time now, nonstop demonstration, that works against his cause. He, that, Booker T. thought that builds anxiety against his race. I didn't want to do that. So 
it wasn't worth the cost. Booker T would write about it later, but he did have a hesitation. Teddy had none, which shows you his mindset. I see a great man. I don't see a black man. And as you know, uh, to paraphrase, Booker T. Washington said, no one has done more for the, uh, for the black race outside Lincoln than Teddy Roosevelt, than President Roosevelt. So that's how he felt in his time. And yet they still boxed up his statue at the Museum of Natural History and moved it out last year. That's a Roosevelt statue. But there's also been, and uh, you have a few moments to talk further about it, I hope. Uh, There's also been some black radicals, particularly back in the 60s and 70s, had nothing but contempt for Booker T. Washington, who was such a heroic figure. I mean, to do what he did coming from where he came. You make the point that he didn't even have a formal name uh, growing up as a little boy in slavery. So what is it that people hold against Booker T. Washington when he really should be one of our most admired Americans from the past? We'll get to that and more on what we can learn from this in our politics today, right now with Brian Kilmeade, author of Teddy and Booker T. Coming up on the Medved Show. From politics to pop culture and from coast to coast, this is the Michael Medved Show. show joined by brian kilmeade of fox news who uh is the co-host of the channel's morning show fox and friends of course he is also uh the co-author of six new york times best-selling books uh including the most recent uh edition which is teddy and booker t how two american icons blazed a path for racial equality and if you're thinking about some kind of gift that is particularly appropriate around Thanksgiving period. Uh, reading this book makes you realize how thankful we should be for some of the great leaders in the past who have made America what it is. And uh, Booker T. Washington was the first great uh, post-Civil War leader uh, toward equality and toward justice for black people. And and again, was someone who changed worldwide the perceptions of the three million people who had been in slavery. And uh, uh, Brian Kilmeade, what did people uh, in the 1960s, some uh, civil rights radicals, as they were called, uh, what do they have against Booker T. Washington? They think he's too accommodating. They think he was too. Um, they thought he was uh, too deferential. They thought, possibly, that he cared more about his access to power than giving power. But if you look and read his books, if you watch his accomplishments, if you see how much money uh, he turned away from, you see a guy didn't take a vacation for ten years. He had to be he had to be uh, begged to take a vacation. Uh, they were afraid. Uh, General Armstrong, his mentor, said to him. You better take a break. He's like, I basically had a heart attack because I wouldn't take a break. Learn from me. And then finally, 
Andrew Carnegie said, listen, I want to give you money. You gotta, I, I'm worried about your pace. So this guy's life was just dedicated to making other people's lives better. But other people said, well, listen, you saw that you uh, this was going on in the South, and you let it happen. He said, well, if I stood up for every lynching that was wrong, any unjust conviction of a black man because it was wrong, uh, if I saw any every injustice, there would be no Tuskegee. I had to pick my spots. I could never make my institution anything but an asset to the community or else thousands of people would not have any shot at an education and transforming generations of their lives. What he would do behind the scenes is provide the financing for great defense, lawyering, bail, protection, advice, but he could not put Tuskegee on the line, even to the point when Teddy Roosevelt's trying to run against Robert Taft, uh, President Taft, uh, who was he was mentoring, and Woodrow Wilson. He asked Booker T for an endorsement. He's like he thought he was going to get. It. He says I can't. If you lose, it's going to hurt Tuskegee, and I can't do that. So I think he was a person of his times, and people might look back now and say, "Wait a second, uh, why did he tolerate that?" Well, that was the way the South was at that at that point. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And I think that he transformed lives. Just seeing him and William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt give the commencement address at his school. How many generations looked and said, I see a black man and a white man together treating each other with great respect. There is no difference between the races. Just by their presence and their their friendship. Um, and and uh, there are people that just said, forget it. Uh, shut down that bridge. Uh, have a sit-in. Uh, have a strike. That was more W.E.B. Du Bois. And that's not Booker T. Washington's speed. No, and they, what, when you look at these two individuals, and particularly, particularly Theodore Roosevelt, who, when he ran for president for re-election after he became a president because of the assassination of McKinley, that was a great successful landslide campaign. And people wrote about that campaign. They enjoyed it. And uh, even though the outcome was never that much in doubt, what what can we learn at this moment of polarization in our politics? What can we learn from Teddy and Booker T? Well, I've had a lot of people say to me, I don't like Teddy, like conservatives say, I don't like Teddy Roosevelt. Really? Okay. Why? Well, you know, he was a conservationist. He, uh, he broke up business. He got his hands involved. He wasn't laissez-faire. Well, listen. These corporations were extremely powerful. They were not They were not distributing power. He looked at them and said, none of you guys got me elected. I'm free to do what's in the best interest of the masses. So I'm going to break you guys up. I'm going to take on big business. You know, the environment matters. He's living in the Badlands before North Dakota was even a state. And he saw what exactly life was like out there. And he said, we got to make some state parks. And people say, well, we could have developed that. We could have drilled on that. Okay. Guilty as charged. But he kept the beauty, and you know what he's meant to the country in that respect. He was a man who, who did what was better for the country. Like Mark Twain would say, he had a huge ego and thought he was all show horse. I thought it was just the opposite. He was show and he was due. He's just a man of action. He was a man in a rush. So I think he blurred the party lines, and he wanted to get stuff done. And yet he had a practical side to him and thought what was possible to get done. And, you know, his big regret was the day he wins election, he says, I will not run for a third term. And that was his biggest regret because he immediately became a lame duck. And he was in the prime of his life when it was time. And he's like, I, should, I really want to keep doing the job. 
and he stepped aside then tried to get it back and it would eventually he'd lose but eventually uh he would die before he could run again because he had plans to run again at 60. Yeah in 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 1920. Uh yeah. yeah man at the age of 60. At the age of 60, right. Absolutely right. And as to Booker T. Washington, uh, his big message, as I got it, and I like you, I was very inspired by his book, Up From Slavery. But he was a great advocate of what people used to call self-help. In other words, that if you are frustrated in your life, uh, it's it's something you have to undertake yourself. You don't blame it on causes or a history, uh, even when there's this horrible, horrible history of slavery. And I think that's part, that emphasis on self-help, isn't it? It's part of what we kind of need at the moment, where everybody seems to be claiming the status of a grieved victim. And he said that. There's the politics of grievance. There's a the business of grievance. He had every reason to complain. He was a slave until he was nine, never had shoes, slept on the floor, same meal every day, came back to the house, remember his mom hugging him, cried tears of joy and saying we're free. And then he said, well, what do we do now? She says, I don't know. When you bring me to that moment in your life, don't tell me the obstacles are too great. When he was uh, Booker T. Washington at the time, he went from slave to one of the most respected men in America and around the world. So I thought this book, it's so interesting you brought me there because I thought this book was the predecessor to Think and Grow Rich, the predecessor to Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, and the predecessor of um, personal power like Anthony Robbins. They, listen, what are you dealing with in life? This is how you overcome it. You do have things within your grasp. Powering through the tough times to make a tough person. And we need some of that grit and that toughness now. Booker T. Washington had no choice. Now, other people that have a choice, that, that makes it hard. The uh, book... Teddy and Booker T, how two American icons blazed a path for racial equality. It'll make you feel good and thankful just to read it. And I'm thankful for Brian Kilmeade. Uh, his book is posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. The latest on the hostage deal coming up. And you can sign up today. It's free, fresh, and uncensored. And we just posted up there uh, a remarkable conversation and uh, which i enjoyed thoroughly that went for an entire entire hour with david brooks of atlantic magazine and a conservative voice at the new york times and uh, talking about his book how to know a person the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen kind of appropriate for people getting ready for thanksgiving dinners uh, there's a new survey about the most stressful Thanksgiving conversation topics. We will get to that because that comes with some uh, advice on how to avoid uh, or at least reduce the stress. But uh, join the conversation with David Brooks, who has some very personal observations uh, about uh, some of the people in power, including uh, President Biden, President Trump, and more. Uh, Check it out at michaelmedved.substack.com. You can sign up today uh, for free. Okay, speaking about signing up for free, uh, there is work continuing on uh, the uh, Israeli War Cabinet approving this deal for the 
first release of uh, some terrorists. And, and again, Michael Oren makes this point. It's a very important point. This is not a humanitarian gesture by Hamas. This is because of pressure. It is because Israel has been successful in taking over uh, uh, the Al-Shifa hospital and uh, and proving to the world and even the BBC that there are terror tunnels underneath that hospital in Gaza. In fact, all of Gaza is penetrated by those uh, terror tunnels. And uh, because the the report from JNS, Jewish News Service, which is a worldwide uh, service that can give you the kind of news that you can't get everywhere, uh, more than 10 of Hamas's battalions in Gaza have sustained significant degradation since the start of the war on October 7th. Uh, a senior Israeli Defense Forces officer said on Monday, uh, the battalion is the main Hamas terror army unit, and approximately a 1,000 terrorists operate in each of the battalions. Hamas battalion commanders dispatched terrorists to conduct the October 7th terror attacks in southern Israel, murdering some 1,200 people and kidnapping as many as 240 people. More than 10 of these 24 battalions have been damaged significantly, and some battalions, the IDF, eliminated hundreds of Hamas terrorists, said the source, who estimated that thousands of terrorists have been killed. A very high number of Hamas commanders have been killed, he said, with some battalions seeing more than 50% of their commanders slain. This can't be replaced in a war, said the officer. Hamas's northern Gaza brigade saw two battalions lose over 50% of their commanders and the Gaza City Brigade saw four battalions also lose more than 50% of their commanders. Now, a lot of the credit for this, this is a very long and very well-documented article, but a lot of the credit goes to a unit called Number 504. Uh, And the um, uh, 504 Military Intelligence Unit, which includes field interrogators, opened a temporary field facility in southern Israel at the start of the war to conduct interrogations of Hamas prisoners in real time, adding that within days this became a permanent facility for interrogations. Uh, Throughout the war, the Unit 504 has been operating with a wide variety of tools and methods to achieve three main goals, support the ground operation, collect intelligence to confirm targets, and lead and influence the effort to evacuate the civilian population of the south of the Gaza Strip. A, uh, the many hundreds of Hamas terrorists arrested have provided Israel with a lot of intelligence, forming a game-changing factor, the IDF official said. A senior 504 unit official added, We receive thousands of phone calls from Gazans on a scale never seen before. It is evident that the residents of the Gaza Strip are not satisfied with the barbaric conduct of Hamas. The ordinary civilian understands that Hamas is bringing disaster to the residents of Gaza that will be difficult for them to recover from. Well, they will have at least a temporary recovery or respite if this uh, uh, deal on the hostages is approved. 
And a part of the deal involves bringing in at least 300 trucks of supplies, which are desperately needed. Uh, there is also this, the, the BBC, which had always been saying, according to the Israeli military sources or according to some reports, they now have actually formally admitted, yes, there are terror tunnels. They've uh, released film of the terror tunnels underneath the hospital, Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Here is the BBC report, clip 20. The IDF says that these soldiers are at the entrance to a 55-metre-long tunnel, 10 metres below the hospital. BBC Verify has geolocated the video to here, the northeast edge of the Al-Shifa hospital complex. We can see here what looks like a muzzle, which we think is the muzzle of a dog that the Israeli military lowered down into a tunnel with the camera. This is the footage they got back. As the camera moves along the tunnel, as you can see, it looks very similar to this Hamas tunnel filmed by the BBC back in 2014. At the end of it is what the IDF says is a blast-proof door with a firing hole in it. Now, we've asked the IDF if they managed to get through the door yet, but haven't had an answer. The IDF has also released what they say is CCTV footage from Al-Shifa on October the 7th, showing hostages taken from southern Israel. You can see a person in blue shorts there who seems to be dragged in against his will. And then these three men we've circled have guns. The video then moves further inside the hospital where you can see an injured person on a trolley whose face has been blurred by the IDF. BBC Verify has established that the person we just saw being dragged in briefly appears in this bit of video too. You can see the same clothing there. Now, the IDF says the two captives in the hospital footage are a Thai and a Nepalese national. And Thai and Nepalese citizens are reported to have been kidnapped from this kibbutz. We've analysed this CCTV footage, which purportedly shows the moment of the kidnapping just there. It's time-stamped around half an hour before the hospital footage on the 7th of October. Okay, uh, this is fairly conclusive and uh, good for them for actually revealing some of the truth here. Uh, not, not everybody is ready to do that. Uh, there is the story of a professor at Wake Forest University. Uh, her name is Laura Mullen. And uh, she resigned after saying that she would be tempted to shoot dance parties uh, just like Hamas did after the vile terror attacks in Israel. She now moans that the school, Wake Forest University, threw her to the wolves. Uh, what she... Um, what she posted on uh, X was, uh, so it's kind of a duh, but if you turn me out of my house and plow my olive groves under and confine what's left of my family to a small impoverished state you run as an open-air prison, I could be tempted to shoot up your dance party, yeah, even knowing you will scorch the earth. Uh, well, good luck with uh, your career, lady. She claims the post was meant to be raw, direct, and poetic. More coming up on the Medved Show. It's outrageous what's going on out here. The Michael Medved Show. A definite approval from the Israeli war cabinet of the hostage deal that has been preoccupying the entire world uh, for quite a while. Uh, there's also another issue that has been raised. Uh, there is a, a columnist who had been 
kind of unaware for, of uh, and, and somebody who would applause the statement uh, by Professor Mullen, at, or former Professor Mullen at Wake Forest, uh, who wanted to issue a post at, right after the October 7th attacks, a post that she said would be raw, direct, and poetic in that it involved imagery. And the post that she uh, used was, so it's kind of a dub, but if you turn me out of my house, plow my olive groves under, and confine what's left of my family to the small, impoverished state you run as an open-air prison, I could be tempted to shoot up your dance party, yeah, even knowing you will scorch the earth. Okay, uh, when she talks about uh, plowing my olive groves under, there are no Israelis who have taken a role until this war began anywhere in Gaza. It is an Israeli-free, Jew-free a total Palestinian paradise. Now, it's not really a paradise because it's run by these uh, homicidal and apocalyptic terrorists. And uh, the uh, Professor Mullen at Wake Forest, the statement by the university says it does not condone or support the views expressed in these posts, but said as a matter of principle, they support the right... Uh, to individual freedom of expression. Mullen claimed there was no personal backlash to her from students, and the mother of a Muslim student offered her any support you need. Well, <laughs> it didn't seem to work out. Uh, and then they, they report in the New York Post that a Cornell University professor who called the Hamas terror attacks exhilarating and energizing has also taken a leave of absence and will not return to uh, teaching classes for the remainder of the year. Mullen said she resigned for personal reasons, according to the school, just weeks after she made her inflammatory tweet in the wake of the Hamas attack that killed um, over 1,200 people. And And by the way... This is uh, Wake Forest had a, another difficulty, which has no connection that I can possibly imagine with the Middle East. In 2022, a popular tenured English professor was paced on, placed on leave after posting online naked photos of himself masturbating. Dr. Omar Henna had been posting the images for seven years. Now, how does that go on when you're a, a faculty member at a prestigious university? In early February, rumors about the images began circulating on the campus social media app Fizz. Old, golden, black suggested Henna may have realized his students were aware of the nudes but left them online anyway. They now appear to have been deleted. And speaking of uh, deleting things and controversy, there is a uh, piece in The Nation by Dave Zarin, the same person who said that he believed that the March for Israel in Washington, D.C., that drew some 300,000 people 
that that was actually a march of hate. He also has a piece, uh, Should Israel's Flag Be Raised at the Paris Olympics? And uh, he says, Israel's attacks on Gaza raise a question that Western powers in the world of sports would like to avoid. Should Israel be penalized or even barred from competing in the Paris 2024 Olympics? This question has already been on the table for Russia, long a thorn in the side of the International Olympic Committee, first for its doping program and then for invading Ukraine between the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics and the Paralympics. Now Israel's actions in Gaza and the West Bank may lead to a campaign to get it booted from the Paris Olympics. Are you kidding me? When you look at what is going on around the world and the real genocide that is happening in Darfur with various militias and uh, Israel, which had, had already lost 11 athletes and coaches who were murdered by Palestinian terrorists in the uh, Munich Olympics in 1972. This is all unreal. Uh, Ken McHugh, a cultural planner with a sport and social justice group in Saka, Ireland, told us the IOC president calls for unity in sport in a recent speech, mentions the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but nothing about Israel's invasion of Palestine. Um, he added, some sport people in Ireland are considering a call for Israel to be banned from the Olympics. The IOC did it to Russia and did it to South Africa. Why can't they do it to Israel? I mean, honestly, you're going to... now. There are a bunch of uh, former South Africans who left South Africa and have set up a uh, 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 their prominent, uh, by the way, here in the United States and and in Israel and lots of Russians in Israel. But they they wanted to get out of Russia. That was the whole idea. And to compare Israel to Russia or South Africa, uh, this is un unreal. The column goes on. What does this mean for Israel? The fiction known as the Olympic truce is not relevant here. But what if Israel were to annex territory that houses Palestinian sports organizations? Where? In Gaza? Uh, Palestine has its own National Olympic Committee based in the West Bank that is recognized by the IOC. The IOC is willing to overlook crimes against humanity, but perhaps not what it considers crimes against sport. It must be said, however, that in the last decade, FIFA has not cared when the Israeli military killed Palestinian soccer players and bombed Palestine soccer stadiums. I have no idea what he is talking about. The IOC is reportedly considering banning Afghanistan from the Paris Olympics because of gender inequality in regards to sports opportunities inside the country. It's not a far-fetched notion that worldwide protests in support of a ceasefire and against Israeli aggression might force the issue of Israel's participation up the IOC's priority list. Uh, this by the same uh, author who wrote the March for Israel was a hate rally. Why did he believe it was a hate rally? Because one of the featured speakers was John Hagee, who is not... Jewish. He is an evangelical Christian leader. He has a very successful 
congregation in uh, Texas and uh, in San Antonio. And again, the idea that John Hagee is some kind of a hate monger or that it's somehow a shame that in this March for Israel that drew 300,000 people that he is included and that that means that you have uh, trolls and uh, evildoers and radicals uh, that, okay, they also had the uh, Democratic leader of the House of Representatives, Hakeem Jeffries, he spoke at the event, as did Senator Schumer, as did Speaker of the House Mike uh, Johnson. And uh, the the entire notion that somehow a uh, a rally in behalf of Israel is actually a rally of hate or uh, expresses some kind of hatred is, is really – it's appalling. And speaking of appalling – uh, there's at least some attention being paid to uh, the uh, upcoming Thanksgiving holiday and a, a new poll about the most stressful Thanksgiving conversation topics and how to avoid them. We'll also be speaking uh, about uh, with Daniel McCarthy of the New York Post about two issues. One that uh, how did America become a deadlier place for men than women? And the statistics here aren't even close. And then secondly, speaking of deadly, uh, he has a piece in the Post how the Israel war could lead to a democratic crack-up 